I'm tweaking into a whole new era. Our support step to this, I dare ya. That was great. Pretty good. Pretty good. Welcome to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. Today is February the 15th, and my name is Christine Kim. In the studio with me is Ashley Park. Jake Clark. I'm Jessica Lynn. We are all broadcasting to you live from the University of British Columbia Vancouver campus from unceded Musqueam Territory. On today's show, we feature an interview with the executive director of the Vancouver International Dance Festival. We've got Sinophone, the Sinophone plays, play, reading series, play yeah. reading series reviews by Ashley and Jake. We've got a book review by Jess of Vital Signs. And mm-hmm. finally, we've also got a sneak preview of my conversation with Canadian author Robert Jay Sawyer. So, before we start, congratulations are in order. Yay to all the single ladies and gentlemen (laughs) for surviving Valentine's Day yesterday. I don't think it was too much of a problem to survive Valentine's Day. See, I don't know about you, but it was one long day yesterday, and I'm just happy that I didn't punch any adorably cute but also overly touchy couples yesterday. I I have a question. I have a question. (laughs) Kidding. Were you, you you know, sad, S-A-D? Singles Awareness Day. You know, I I was happy for all the romantic lovebirds out there. Valentine's Day. (laughs) There have been very many different versions. Sorry. Galentine's Day. Galentine's Day, that too. There are many different ways to be single. (laughs) That's true, that's true. Well, I know, regardless of people... I I had a great double feature, Fifty Shades of Grey in the Lego Batman movie. I heard you watched that. That was a weird ticket purchase. Like, I want to see a double feature today. What? Fifty Shades Darker and the Lego Batman. (laughs) That's like, hi, I'd like to buy a copy of Caligula and this copy (laughs) of Adventure Time. Yes. (laughs) That is actually... Accurate. Okay, like, like, because I, I saw the first one in the theater, and I shared this story, I think, last Valentine's Day. Yeah. This one is slightly worse. Like, it, Is it's, it? I'm going to see it today. It's really? kind of a... Yeah. Like, for, for enjoyment or for ironic purposes? <laughs> well, actually, for, for a review for another place. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like... The thing is that the first one, I like the soundtrack a lot. I still like Dakota Johnson's acting. I still do. I honestly... What I really want to happen now is, like... They did, like, a female reboot of Ghostbusters. That was okay. But I really want them to do a female reboot of Miami Vice with, like, her and Zoe Saldana. And I think that would be great. I, I think that would just be fantastic. I'll fund you. I'll fund you. Like, yeah, like, I actually uh, don't dispute that. Like, uh, Kickstarter. Kickstarter. Yeah, like, but, uh, like, the guy who plays Christian <laughs> Grey still, like, he's... <laughs> the funny thing is, Jamie Dornan, the guy who plays Christian Grey, I was like, I've seen him in something else before, so I, I IMDb'd him. Yeah. He plays a serial killer in The Fall. He has those kinds of eyes. Yeah. yeah. He, yeah. And he plays Christian Grey <laughs> in the exact <laughs> same way. That's, that's, like... Like, something's attractive. off. Something's missing there. Like, he has this oddly intense stare... But it's also sort of flat. I don't know, Christine. If someone if someone like started chewing like that, what would what would happen? What happened to you, Christine? Nothing. Well, I hope that no matter what kind of Valentine's Day it was for everybody, I hope it was magical. And Eh, not bad considering. (laughs) And so I think, like I mentioned in the beginning, we are going to start off with the Vancouver International Dance Festival interview, um, which has and VIDF has actually very recently announced their exciting 2017 program, which Mm -hmm. is going to be running from March first to the 25th and us as the arts report we cover this festival yearly and our newest arts reporter by the name of carolina duke interviewed jay Hirabayashi, who's the executive director of the idf 
she asked Jay about the returning dance company known as Alonzo King Lines Ballet, as well as Mm -hmm. about Jay's personal dance background. So I'm going to be playing that right now. And then we'll be back to banter more. Alonzo King, the man who sounds like somebody who should be playing Christian Grey. I don't know what he looks like or actually. Yeah. Is it just because of the name? Is it because of the King part or is it because of the Alonzo Alonzo part? King. Just think about that. That's a very fiery name. It's a very, I don't know. We were actually talking about like viral names, like viral, kind of like, you know, like has a lot of like male potency or whatever. Virile. And, yeah. Virile, right? Names in class. And I was like. Hi. This is- oh, we'll return to this after the dance interview. I know you guys, you want to hear the dance interview. And here it is. This is Carolina Duque reporting from CITR 101.9 Arts Report. And today we'll be interviewing Jay Haribayashi. Jay Haribayashi is not only a dancer, a choreographer, and an administrator. He is also a dance writer and the executive director of the Vancouver International Dance Festival. He has written interviews for a number of renowned dance and art magazines. Among his most famous choreographies is a work called Rage, a magnificent piece that has been performed more than 200 times across Canada. Um, Hi, Jay. How are you today? I'm uh, just fine, thanks. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. So for the interview, I would just like to start off asking you, what is your story with dance? How did everything start for you? For me personally? Yes. I was actually uh, going to grad school at UBC, and um, before that I used to be a downhill ski racer, and I had uh, partially torn the cartilage in my left knee, and um, left leg started to buckle when I'd be walking around, and so I went to an orthopedic surgeon, and he said that I could either uh, wait um, and eventually my knee would probably lock up at some point, or he said he could cut the cartilage out and uh, and uh, fix my leg, he said, anyway. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I decided to have surgery, and uh, then I, uh, after I had it done, I, I thought about doing something to get my legs strong again and decided to take a dance class. And this was um, 1978, I think it was. And what type of dance class was it? Uh, it was a modern dance class. Uh, I had I had a three-year-old daughter who I had taken to the Paula Ross dance studio that used to be on Broadway and, and Waterloo. Saw that they taught grown-ups as well, so I thought I'd take a class there. And um, <clears throat> I, I found out that I really enjoyed it, and so I, I started taking a couple classes a week and then she came out with a deal that if you paid $100, you could take as many classes as you wanted. So I started taking three classes a day. And then after six months, she gave me a scholarship. And after nine months, she asked me if I would like to join her company. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. So you started with modern dance then. Yeah. Yes. And I understand that you have an interdisciplinary approach to dancing. Yeah, uh, our company, Cocoro Dance, is, uh, <clears throat> always does work with lots of other uh, artists, um, including uh, playwrights, and so we're, we're very much interested in collaborating with uh, 
artists from different dis- disciplines. Well, that's that's pretty impressive. Um, I have also read that you experiment with different cultural dancing expressions. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, we, my wife Barbara Bourget and myself uh, saw a performance in 1980 from uh, a Japanese buto company called Harupenha, and we had never, we didn't know what buto was or what we were going to see, but the performance really impressed us with its uh, because it was so different from anything that we had seen before. So we began to research it a bit more and um, at the time we were uh, both dancing with the Paul Ross Dance Company and then we formed uh, Edom, five other people. Uh, but uh, six years after we saw that performance, we formed Kokoro Dance and we decided that Buto was the dance form that we wanted to express ourselves in. So um, from that point on, that's the direction we took. Fantastic. And could you tell us a little bit more about Kokoro Dance Theatre Society? What is it about? What is its mission? It's a vehicle for the artistic expression of Barbara and myself. Uh, and its interest is in in this fusion of of Japanese buto and Western contemporary dance. And it's uh, an organization that also um, is interested in identifying what it means to be Canadian by uh, celebrating the diversity that uh, exists in Canada. And what about if someone wants to get involved with the company or take classes? Do you offer any of these? Yeah, um, we, we, we're currently on... A, short hiatus because we are building new dance studios in the Woodward's um, Heritage Building, and they are almost ready. Uh, We're hoping that March we will be teaching again, and we teach um, five days a week in the mornings, and then every year in the summer we have a two-week performance intensive uh, that we do that ends up with performances on Rec Beach. Wow. Do you actually perform on Rec Beach with all the dancers from the workshop? Yeah, we've done, we've done it for uh, 21 years. 21 years. Wow. I'm looking forward for the next one then. Yes. You can um, take it if you want. It's I would. Anybody. <laughs> yeah, I would love to. It, does it, is it only Bhutto dance or is it a mixture of different types of dancing? It's uh, Bhutto, yeah. Okay. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just curious, did you... And your wife met in the dancing scene. Um, was it kind of a dance-related, yeah, relationship, or did you meet her before that? And you both got uh, into the dance uh, world. We, we met. We uh, we actually met in a dance studio. I was I was dancing with the Paul Ross Dance Company, and Barbara was hired to um, actually replace uh, one of the dancers that got pregnant. So she was on maternity leave, and Barbara came to take her place. Now we have four kids and five grandkids, and, and we're still going. <laughs> <laughs> That's really nice. Um, now let's talk about the Vancouver International Dance Festival. Um, how did you become part of this? Tell me your... Yes, Quantum Night is my... Tw- I started with it. We started the festival in 2000, so this is the 17th year that uh, we'll have produced it. And we started it because at the time we noticed that not only ourselves, but other Vancouver dance companies were doing self-presentations every year, 
that weren't being seen by a whole lot of people, and it was difficult also to get presenters from other cities to come and see just one company. Also, there weren't, uh, at 17 years ago, there, there was less dance companies coming to Vancouver, so it was di- difficult to actually see what was going on in the rest of the world. So we thought starting a festival would be a good way of both building larger audiences for dance and also supporting local Vancouver dance companies, also just bringing dance from around the world to Vancouver and basically putting Vancouver on the international map of dance uh, because when we would travel and go to Europe or uh, other places and people would ask where we were from and we would say Vancouver and they, they wouldn't know where that, where that was. So they knew, they knew about Montreal, but that was about it. Nice. Well, it looks like you and your wife have done an amazing job, yeah, putting Vancouver in the international scope for dancing. Mm-hmm. And um, what, is there a special theme each year, or what is it? Is there something special about these years? Well, this year, this year is an interesting year because a lot of the groups that are performing, not all of them, but quite a few, are companies that we've presented before and that were really well attended and re- really well liked by their appearances in past years. So um, two of them um, that are performing at the Vancouver Playhouse, Alonzo King's Lines Ballet, and um, which is an American ballet company that we first saw in France, actually, uh, and Daiba Kudokan, which is Japan's oldest and largest buto company with 21 dancers. Both of those companies have been presented by the the IDF before, and we're really happy to bring them back. And then also from Denmark, we're bringing uh, Kit Johnson, who's another amazing solo dancer. And from Toronto is Keja Dance, which is a, a couple that are performing duets choreographed on them by Benjamin Camino and Ted Robinson, who are two choreographers that we've also presented in the past. And then from Montreal is company Virginie Brunel, who we actually presented just last year uh, with a <clears throat> really striking work, and she's created a brand new work, so we're doing the Western Canadian premiere of that work here. Well, uh, I myself, I'm really excited about the Alonso King's Lines ballet piece. I yeah. can't wait to see it. I've heard amazing things about it. Yeah, the, the, he has some of the best dancers in the world, and... Uh, it's uh, his choreography is unlike any other uh, ballet choreographer. It's really uh, fluid and rhythmic, and yeah, the dancers are fantastic. Yeah, um, it sounds like it. So I I just wonder, what are your visions for the VIDF in the future? Like, what are your projections on it? Well, we we'd like it to continue to grow. We'd we'd really want more and more people to be able to experience the joy and excitement of watching uh, live dance. So our, um, our hope is that it'll be uh, a, le- a legacy that we leave for Vancouver that will continue long after we've moved on, mm. uh, that it'll be a, a continuing source of enjoyment for Vancouver people to, to yeah. experience. Yeah, on that note, with your experience in the dance scene, what do you think is the impact that dance has in a society? Well, I think that um, dance is uh, an art form like all the other ones that that really conveys what it means to be human. It it conveys
phrase it with the language of movement and with using the body as its instrument, but it really tells people what it means to be human, what it means to have joy, to have grief, to have uh, yearnings, to, to, you know, to have hope, have community. I think it's a metaphor for life in general. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's beautiful. Okay. Is there anything else you would like to add? No, uh, I hope your listeners will visit the website. It's vidf.ca and that we see them at our, our shows. Yes, we'll make sure to advertise it and let everyone know, okay. at least at the UBC campus. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you for your time. Have a great day. All right. That was Jay Hirabayashi. I am Carolina Duque reporting from CITR 101.9 for the Arts Report. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Carolina. Carolina. <laughs> you can find out more about VIDF at www.vidf.ca. Next up on the show, we are going to be talking about Sinophone Plays, which is something that both Jake and Ashley went to go see. Well, I was actually part of one of the uh, Sinophone Play uh, reading uh, series, but um, it's really great. We had the um, the directors for a special kind of uh, interview and all that kind of stuff, which was wonderful. The main thing that we were we wanted to kind of talk about these plays is that this is the first time that UBC has done it. It is a worldwide drama competition. They had all these playwrights from all around the world who are bilingual, so Chinese or English speaking. They send it to this competition. The best three were picked, and they were actually produced for a staged reading here at UBC. So it started on January the 25th with uh, Holy Crab, then continued the Wednesday after with Dirty Paws or How to Make a Great Documentary Film, and then ended uh, actually last week Wednesday with Bowsy of the Fist, which I was actually a part of. I wanted to keep it a little like on the DL. Yeah, you never told us this. Yeah, of course. Uh, But I was a part of the the reading, which was really wonderful. Uh, That was a double feature with bass drama. So they actually did a fully performed and staged Chinese version Mm. right after ours, which was really cool. And with with the surtitles in English. That's right, with surtitles in English, which is awesome and amazing. So we had actually surtitles in Mandarin Chinese when Mm -hmm. we did the reading, so that people could get the full experience, no matter what language they spoke. Because uh, I, I don't know if this is apparent, but I am, I am not fluent in Chinese. Oh, really? Shocking, shocking as that Jake, may be. I don't think any of us are. Wait, a second, Jess? Kind of. Oh. Although my parents would say otherwise, constantly. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know about as much Chinese as I know French? Like No, no, I know, or... like, m- probably more, but, like, uh-huh. still, you know. Just, oh, snap! Just because I grew up with it, but, you know, oh, okay, like, so, yeah, so. not advanced stuff. Mm-hmm. So, Jay, you having gone as just a a, a participant slash, slash viewer, what did you think of it? Yeah, it was uh, – so – now, I'm, uh, I mentioned this before when we discussed this, but I, I do not know uh, a lot. Actually, I would say I don't know anything about Chinese theater. But I do know a lot about Bertolt Brecht and Brecht – Brecht, I, for the love of God. Pronouncing <laughs> his name baffles me every time. It's not difficult. It's not a difficult name to pronounce. It's just that one – it's not even a diphthong. Anyway, um, Brecht loved Chinese theater. And he actually did set at least one play in, in his in China, The Good mm-hmm. Person of Sichuan. Yeah. Sichuan? Yeah. And um, I could really see that in this. I could see in, in more so in the one when they, uh, in the actual performance, in the, mm-hmm. the fully acted performance, because they use a very spare set and they use very selective props. And they mentioned when the, 
people who were putting on this festival came in. They mentioned they use a fan uh, very diversely for things like a message shot in with an arrow. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. We should talk about the plot we of the We should talk play, about the plot, actually. actually. So Fauci of the Fist, which is the one that we went to, uh, well, I was part of, of the reading, and that you went to see. The mm-hmm. playwright is uh, Qian Zheng Wang, and the translation was done by Kiat Xingqiu. The one thing is that I think the base drama club had a different script than us. That was like the one thing. It read like it a little bit, too. It read different. Which they're not, the Chinese and English, though, it'd be very hard to translate, I mm-hmm. imagine. They're fairly... Fairly different languages. Mm-hmm. So with Fauci of the Fist, for people who might not be aware of it, it, it is based on the Boxer Rebellion in China. Mm-hmm. And that was a violent kind of anti-foreign and anti-Christian uprising that happened in China between 1899 and 1901 towards the end of the Qing dynasty. It was basically run by the Yihetuan, who are known in the English as boxers. So the thing about... What happened during that time is that there was a lot of anti-foreign sentiment, anti-Christian sentiment because of the trade that was happening between China and the other European powers during that time. Because they all, everybody wanted a bit of that Chinese pie, you know? They're like, China has all the goods we want. We well, want it. The, the, the British had a pretty good way about it, you know. How do we get tea from China? We pay them for it. No, can't do that. No, we trade them other goods not to do that. Okay, maybe I see what you're doing. What do you do? We get everyone addicted to opium. Brilliant. I like your reasoning there. Amazing, amazing. Anyways, so... That's diplomacy for you. <laughs> so yeah. we had all the all the opium wars happening and whatnot. Yeah. And the like Chinese... I'm watching the play right now. <laughs> Good one, Jake. Right? And the Chinese are like, ugh, our hands are so friggin' tied by all these Western powers that... They were that these people they basically signed all these like treaties in which they were allowed all these kind of like embassies into China and they had a very special set of rules for their missionaries, which actually mm-hmm. raised some concerns. And I talked about them in the talk back. Basically, yeah. they allowed um, churches and cr- Christian um, kind of like ministers and whatnot priests to be able to buy any land in China for use of creating a church. And not only that, they created a rule saying that parishioners who followed the laws of the Christian church were going to be pardoned or were were going to not be able to be kind of like convicted under Chinese law. So basically diplomatic immunity as seen by Lethal Weapon 2. That's right. So because of that, we had a lot of um, kind of, I would say, animosity by the Chinese people towards these uh, foreigners that is expressed throughout the play because they have all these protections in the government and they are still, but and they are basically feeling like the government has abandoned us. The government has become um, kind of tied to these foreign powers. The government no longer protects us. What will protect us? Oh, the church will protect us. I, I, I want to be protected like the people of the church are. So that's the reason why I'm going to start believing in Christianity and in God. And then you have that movement. So you have the people who were thinking like, you know what? I'm just going to take the opportunity and become a Christian, which is not, of course, like the best means of becoming a no, Christian. Not but really. during that time, that was the only thing that was safe because in, when you are a churchgoer, you were able to get food. And during that time, mm. there was a lot of drought happening. The yeah. cities weren't allowing, you know, uh, giving enough aid to the people. So they were like, you know what, this is the only way. Let's do it. There's, then... There's an interesting passage in yeah. this, too, that applies to that. Is the um, 
the bishop, is he a bishop? Yeah, the, Bishop Favier. When he's considering the uh, reason, he says it's a different uh, view of it. It's a very practical view of faith mm-hmm. uh, because of the situation, mm-hmm. which is interesting because I see I saw Silence recently, the Martin yep. Scorsese movie, which is a very, uh, that's set in Japan, not China, which is a whole different, different culture. Different, different culture. But uh, it's a similar thing is almost broached as the thought that in this case, in the case of Silence, it's that the... Uh, those converted are usually very, very poor people living in rural areas, mm. and this gives them something to believe that there will be a reward. When that's just not there before. Like, it's just, it's not, you're not going to be rewarded. It's just that, no, it's not considered. And the reaction... So faith is kind of seen as a coping mechanism. Yes, and the point that they do make um, in, in Silence, which does a great job of even human of actually humanizing the people who do execute them, mm-hmm. uh, execute the Christians, because it is punishable by death. It's very easy to get out of, but to get out of it, you have to step on a picture of Christ. And they, they point out that that's only a formality. And their point is not, it's wrong to believe in Christianity. It's that we made this rule, and it's wrong to disobey us. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's not, it, does, it has nothing to do with, like, they just say, we've examined your faith, we have no use for it, mm-hmm. is what they say, which is really cold thing to say it's a pretty it's a brutal thing to say but that's the same kind of very practical consideration and was the tone of the readings uh, for the sinophone plays pretty morose no not at all Uh, i think that uh the fifth was actually quite uh humorous it's just during that time it's it's a historical piece, whereas the other ones, Holy Crab and Dirty Paws, I would say Dirty Paws was actually quite strong, and I'll get to that uh, quite later, but Holy Crab was actually quite funny. I would say it's quite funny. It was more contemporary than the other pieces. But with Thalcy of the Fist, the main thing that was the most absurd is that then you have these people who are against these people turning back on their on their kind of like their kind like the chinese people turning back on their chinese people like why are you believing the christian faith why don't you believe in our ancestral gods so, so they become the yi the yi tuan the righteous fists the boxers and they ha- it's really funny because religion is used in both ways so they are also very very religious but they believe in the ancestral Chinese gods, like the Jade Emperor, the Monkey King, they, that kind of thing. Yeah. So what they do is they have this belief that they are super superpowered beings, that they can call, sorry, <laughs> being a little theatrical here, I just knocked my headphones. They can call upon the gods, and the gods will give them strength and give them invulnerability to bullets. Maybe they can be able to part the earth with one finger and, like, kick a mountain like all these powers can be bestowed upon them by the gods that's what they believe so these people go to set out and kill anyone who they deem is supporting a foreign power and that is actually turning on the christian missionaries and especially even the own chinese believers so with Fauci the fist it takes place in a sieged uh, they are they are besieging a church for two months. This is a historical event that did happen, and it is a life about these churchgoers. And um, all the characters are very fluid. There is five narrators, so they take in multiple characters. So there is an arc, but the main point is that it doesn't matter whether you are a Chinese person, a Christian believer, a non-Christian be- a believer, or whatever. This one fox character that is separate from that is separate from all the humans just sees it as being absurd because they're just killing one another instead of working out a compromise. 
Well, the thing that I figured from the reading, too, this mm-hmm. is because the reading that you guys did Thank you. Yeah. was significantly more heavy in tone it than was heavier the play in tone. was. Because the play, I think I think a lot of it was the performance, is the framing of these events as being absurd comedy, which is also what makes things like Brecht funny, because this is funny for the same reason. This is funny because human beings are awful. Mm-hmm. But it's not about faith, really. I don't. I didn't think this was a story about faith. I didn't read into that. And um, what I read this as a story about was, and probably circumstantially speaking, mm-hmm. a story about, you know, manic mob thinking, yep. division, rampant xenophobia leading to violence. How could that be applicable to anything, right? <laughs> I was just about to say, well, how timely are those kind of themes well, the at thing this is, day and age? The sad thing is they're not. Not really. Like, the thing about this, too, is that a Brecht in particular, and again, I'm speaking for Brecht here because I know nothing about Sinophone theater, uh, but I think the tradition is similar, aimed for applicability. His plays are supposed to be able to be performed largely in whatever context to a comparative minimum of uh, change. Mm-hmm. And that's even true with dated plays like uh, Mac, like uh, Mac the Knife, the song, you know, oh, the shark has the Bob Dar- Bobby Darren version sounds nothing like it's supposed to. <laughs> that comes from uh, the, the Beggar's, no, the Three Penny Opera, which mm-hmm. is a version of a play by John Gay called the Beggar's Opera. And what Brecht did with that was take a play that was already fairly applicable but still a little dated and just burnish it until you can take it and its songs, despite there being a very definite feel to it, you can put them in just about any given period and almost any given acting style and make it somehow work. Which is interesting because Brecht, while he didn't care about setting, did care about character a lot and he hated people showing Mac Heath as a hero. I get the feeling you could do the same thing with this play because there's a few characters in this play that could really go either way. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was uh, directed. The reading was directed by Anna Holman, which we had an uh, interview that was uh, previously aired. And the uh, full production was directed by uh, Jalen Han. I know for sure that if people want to see the uh, production of uh, Fallacy of the Fist, it is actually I think it's still going for a little bit. Is it? I, th- yeah. I thought it was a three night thing. Oh, only only the play reading series. The actual production oh, people okay, are able yeah, to yeah, actually yeah. come to. And uh, tickets tickets are, um, I think they're like 5 to $8. Don't quote me on that. But quite affordable, very cool play. Um, they won't break the bank. They won't break the bank. Uh, the other plays, I'll just go really quick. Holy Crab, very funny. Great use of origami, which I loved. Uh, directed by Yuri Chang. Really great. Um, it was about more like modern love. Can I just read some of the credits here? for Feel just free. Just to characterize the tone of this. One man, Rafael Ruiz is playing, in order, Javier, pregnant woman's husband, Caucasian man, black father, customer number four, Catwoman two, and Norwegian salmon. Yeah. See the play. Yeah, it's, it's already done, which sucks, but uh, it was it was quite I would be happy good. with Norwegian salmon. Like, what was your favorite role? Well, I played a Norwegian salmon once. Yeah. You're hired. <laughs> it, it, you're going to play Hamlet? I, I, Hamlet? I don't care if you're a 70-year-old woman. You're going to play Hamlet. That was the first prize winner, Holy Crab, and that was by uh, Zhu Yi. Really great topical uh, kind of play, especially with modern culture and and basically how (laughs) different cultures intermingle, which was really interesting, especially with, like, what is banned and what is not banned. Yeah, the Bangladeshi prawn and the Norwegian salmon seem like they'd be very interesting. (laughs) Dirty Pauser, How to Make a Great Documentary Film. That was uh, by uh, Zhao Binghao and translated by Dan Bao. It was one of the darker pieces. I, w- I would say it's actually even darker than ours. Uh, it was basically about this young man, a filmmaker. He 
comes to this really, really poor rural part of China, and basically he wants to, of course, liberate the workers. You know that bring that feel of community. I'm going to break you from your bonds of slavery, and you know, blah blah blah, because he's so he he thinks he's so enlightened, he's he's so educated that he should know all about this. But because he's never really gone through a really tough life. He soon figures out. Oh my God! I am in way over my head. Did you watch it? No, but um, I did take um, <clears throat> like a course in university that kind of just touched on the whole idea, kind of like that, like the whole like white savior going to like、mm. so-called third world countries, thinking that they're because they live in the specific area, they must be so educated and so like. Uh, they they should already know what's best for this like kind of like child that they're taking care of, but it's like、yeah. a you、mm-hmm. know another great movie like that is Apocalypse Now.、Mm-hmm. That one ended happily. That one that one isn't that like isn't Apocalypse Now even based upon like、uh, Heart the, of Darkness? Heart of Darkness yes, by Joseph Conrad, right? The definitive book、yep. on that. Although Heart of Darkness is really casual because at the time <laughs> Heart of Darkness was written, that was just the universal opinion.、Mm-hmm. Like it was written, and I think if I am wrong, like the eighteen nineties, like. Not the most sensitive time in history to colonial issues.、Mm-hmm. Like at one point, he refers to a bunch of、uh, starved Africans as a bundle of acute angles.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that's、uh, that's heart of darkness.、Mm-hmm. I'm a, and this dirty paws thing. Does that sort of have that sort of progressive sort thing, of thing, but deeper and deeper. But no, it it just、madness. it's more like the breaking of that young man's spirit when they realize the child laborers he's trying so hard to liberate have. Become corrupted very much by the system, and that there is no such thing as equality because they will find ways to create hierarchy. Human beings will always find ways to create hierarchy、That's、and、true. control other people. So that was like really, really depressing, especially because it involved children being taken advantage of, and I mean taken advantage of in all the ways. My God, no wonder Bertolt Brecht latched onto the genre. That was that was real heavy,、um, but but Holy Crap was really funny, and Dirty Paws made me think a lot. That's like the one thing. And Dirty Paws honestly did have a few. Like the one guy, the one guy is One Punch Man. <laughs> Which one? The old Lou. The... Oh no no no! That's not Dirty Paws. That's Fallacy of the Fist. No, that's fa- oh oh, that's Fallacy of the Fist. That's、yeah. right. Oh. Yeah, that's old. That's old yo. I thought you said Fallacy of the Fist. I don't know why. That's okay. <laughs> Like yeah. Yakai was literally One Punch Man. He, he just, just well, he did just like punch one guy and it killed him. Like oh crap! And then punch another guy, it killed him. Like ah! Like come that, to think of it, this guy is basically a superhero. That's like what I'm talking about. Fallacy with this. There is a bit of like humor and lightness. Well, for him, it wasn't a fallacy. It's the sudden enlightenment of the fist. Like. <laughs> Whoa. Okay, that'll get her done. But yeah, that was、uh, the Sinophone Play Reading Series. I really hope that、uh, UBC will do another year of it. Really great to see like what modern Chinese theater is about, because a lot of the Chinese theater that comes to Vancouver is the traditional stuff. Well, you know, I, one thing I'm worried about, you know, is that somebody will hear us say Sinophone and they're like, Sinophone. Is that like some kind of CD player? <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> the, I can see that happening. <sighs> no, it.、Uh... But anyway, these these are good plays. Check them out. Yeah, it was it was really fun being a part of that. Especially、reading. the one with the Norwegian salmon. Just that that. that who knows? Who knows? I, Maybe Holy Crab will be produced again someday. But it was a really good.、Play. I hope so. Oh yeah, that was one of the play readings. I'm glad you guys had a really good evening, and thank you guys、yeah. so much for the review.、Um, so I guess we're transitioning to Jess's book review now. What did you read this week?
I read Vital Signs, and it was just a collection of uh, five novellas by this um, author named <clears throat> John Metcalf, and um, <laughs> uh, I don't know what I thought going into it, but I definitely didn't... Uh <laughs> Why the giggles? Why the giggles, friend? Well, because content, um, content warning. warning. This is, there's going to be um, some sexual content, especially in the in the first uh, story. Um, it's called Private Parts. Um, I yeah. was pretty uncomfortable while like reading this on you know the Sky Train, the bus, and you know. But I realized that this was actually the most interesting story out of the five because. Um, one problem that I had a l- with with uh, most of these stories was that it was very aimless, and I uh, struggled to find, you know, when you read a story, you mm-hmm. you think there's going to be a conflict and there's going to be a solution, or it's going to make you think, or it's going to make sense somehow. But this really doesn't. My friend the other day pointed out that this is kind of nihilistic, and I kind of agreed because I after reading these stories, I was like, well, what? How, how so? Like, what example in the book would would okay. give that impression? Okay, um, so I guess I'll go to the third um, story called Girl in Gingham, or how do you, however you pronounce it. Gingham? Gingham. Gingham. It's Gingham. Gingham? It's a fairy. Okay, I'll look it up later. (laughs) Um, So basically this guy, um, he got divorced, and then uh, the story is set like two and a half years later where um, his friends are trying to get him to go dating again because... That's what friends do. And um, they set him up on this online dating site, I guess, called Compumate. Um, and then... <laughs> oh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> like, like, Consummate by the computer. <laughs> yeah, you can say and it that my, way. My friend, my friend Turner made a movie like that. It was called Computer Hearts. Probably yeah. not similar. Uh, look up <laughs> these names. These names, though. Okay. So, uh, yeah, he gets the, he gets the profile. And... Um, he calls a girl um, that he matches with once, and then the girl answers, and she's like, oh, sorry, um, my friends, or no, my coworkers, uh, they made this profile for me. Um, I actually, like, not really, you know, down for all this, but, you know, bye. And, <laughs> <laughs> and um, afterwards, he sends this, like, five-page-long letter to her, like, a legitimate letter, like, through a mailbox. Um, oh. Apologizing. And, um... Uh, he he actually gets a note back from her. Um, it's a shorter one, but anyways, they go on a date, and then, okay, I'll I'll get to the end ending soon, but on the date, it, it's it goes you know it's going smoothly and stuff, and then she starts coughing for thirty minutes, then we realize that then like doctors show up because something's oh. obviously wrong, mm-hmm. and then you guys can probably see where this is going. Um, she goes apparently into anaphylactic shock, and then it's implied that she's dead by the end. That is the definition of a cop-out ending. Happy Valentine's Day! Drops Mike. So that would be your example of a so pointless... Just sounds kind of uh, random, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was definitely a big issue that I had with with all of this. It wasn't just, oh, you d- you did this to, for for novelty reasons. It was legitimately. I couldn't find a reason. Like I would definitely. I'm sorry, but like I'm being very blunt here. But I would definitely not recommend this book to to people. And it was funny because in the beginning, um, there was like this preface thing. Uh, 
one second. I'm just going to get the name. No, no, definitely go for it. I, I think that's very interesting that uh, you mentioned a lot of, like, is 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 there a lot of, like, death of women, like, throughout mm. the book? Like, a lot of, like... Ooh, that's that's an interesting point. Oh, yeah. But, uh, no. I wouldn't okay. I wouldn't say that. Only that one had, like, a very, like, very prominent death of a woman, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, it definitely wasn't, like, an, like an issue in the book. <coughs> Of like excessive deaths of women, um, but uh, let me see. You know, it, like the De Palma problem. Yeah. Um, so the beginning was uh, written by Ajit uh, here, and he really pumped up John Metcalf as a uh, a really like one of the most amazing writers of of his generation like he's like just so good and he uses he brilliantly i'm paraphrasing here but like he brilliantly uh uses the structure of the novella and you know he's so great he's he's not <laughs> he's not was there he's was there just like a not theme? that's just Cut it. Was there yeah. like a theme to these stories? Or? No, except for except for the nihilism uh, that you were picking up on. Except for nihilism, mm-hmm. and I, I found um, kind of interestingly, um, actually sexual content because even though it wasn't so, um, it wasn't so like in your face as it was in the first story, which I will get to explaining uh, soon. Of course, um, it was definitely pre- like present in uh, a lot of the like. It, with, with, with okay, so it mm-hmm. um, they described like they would the, okay the first story would spend pages describing like genitalia like like scientifically describing it and scientifically. like yeah and like hmm. because the main character he um basically <laughs> I guess we're getting into the first story yeah then. okay we'll get into the first story because yeah. this will explain a lot um so he grow, grows up with um a in like a christian family and you know therefore he uh has a lot of you know guilt towards masturbation towards so like a lot of repression a, definitely a lot of repression so uh he it's it's very <laughs> he makes it very clear that he doesn't like uh his mother because she would always she would be constantly guilting him for uh, not even anything sexual, but just onanism. any anything that he did, mm-hmm. anything. So just onanism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry. Okay, and um, basically, uh, he would just he met the he's he meets this friend who uh, they kind of um, do a lot of like deviant stuff, kind of you know, a little bit of, like, perverted stuff. They just go, like, just don't treat women well. Uh-huh. Just, uh, they look at them weird ways and... Um, Basically sexualizing them, objectifying them, right? Yeah, yeah, objectifying it. them. So, I so guess like, on a scale of, of one to Caligula. You and Caligula, you are bad from saying that word for the rest of this year, my friend. It's only February and you can't even say the word now? Dang, Jake. I thought that was relevant. Like Three times in an hour. Like, in the in the amount of gallons of olive oil required to facilitate their hobbies. <laughs> Maybe on. that's not the best measurement. <laughs> Moving on. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but yeah, like I said, like there's a lot of, um, specifically he deals with a penile inadequacy. <laughs> like that's a very um, prominent issue that he deals with because there's oh, yeah. one scene. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Okay, 
there's one scene where he's very young and uh there's 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 this person on a farm who like i guess likes to mess around and then he kind of like derobes this child which i find is very messed up but anyways uh the main character catches a glimpse of this child he calls it a thing which i find hilarious he literally calls it a thing okay and he's like oh my god it's so big and and he just forever that scene is uh stuck in his mind uh for the basically the rest of his life and he's just like well well i can't so he goes into like pages of kind of almost like reasoning something like like reasoning why this is like a legitimate problem reasoning uh, like all of these things that you wouldn't normally think of but i guess is always like on his mind so i just found it like a very um definitely in- like entertaining i guess um but it ended on a very mundane note because by the end he's just he has a wife and he has kids and uh he's just saying oh um I, I might have like used up all of my passion in when I was like sixteen, and that's kind of the note that this story ends on, and it's, uh, it but it but it is it's actually unsatisfying. Yeah, very un kind of unsatisfying, but not as unsatisfying as other stories because this is actually the most entertaining story I would say out of all of the five. It's about as satisfying as his sex life, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Question question in general about the mm-hmm. book. Is sexual content kind of the main focus of all these like novellas or vignettes, or is it just you have events but sexual content is present and it not really the main feature or <laughs> main question. observation? I would say that I think John Metcalf as an author, um, has like is thinking about this a lot because I think it almost like inadvertently comes up um, in his character's thought processes, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't seem like it just like it just seems random. I mean, it makes sense because you know we're like we're human oh, and stuff. Every but seven seconds, right? <laughs> that is, I, I I say that's a myth, but um, you know it. I uh, know I'm trying to disprove it right now. It's not working. Still thinking about Suicide Squad. I see. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about Suicide Squad during the break. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so so sexual content is not really is not really so much the focus, but it is always a present. It's always present, but okay. it's not like the point of this. So yeah, um, I would say don't read this. Just don't. Just it's not worth it. It's a very long book. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the book review, Jess. No problem. So the Arts Report is going to be taking a short break, but we're going to be back um, and we'll be playing an interview uh, with the Canadian author Robert J. Sawyer about his book Quantum Night, which has received several accolades and mentions in the press and is now recently out in paperback. Uh, So the interview that I had with Robert was about the political and the social implications of his novel. We're not going to be able to play the full (coughs) interview, but that is coming up right after the book right after the break, so everybody stay tuned. Most days, my partner and I pass through the world unnoticed. He's a he, I'm a she, and that makes us invisible. Except the time we crossed the border into the U.S. My partner wasn't a citizen of either country, so we had to park our car and request special permission to enter. At that time, his passport didn't indicate that he was male. So, as he had done many times before, he calmly explained why. 
The guard showed no expression. She simply nodded and left the counter with his passport, disappearing into a small office. While she was in there, five different guards slowly walked out of that office, each one trying but failing to appear nonchalant and looked at my partner, or I should say, looked over my partner. I was fuming. I wanted to call them out on it, but if I did, I would have ruined our chances of spending the weekend in Portland. Eventually, we were given permission to enter. Without a word, we walked back to our car and continued on our journey. I can't believe what just happened, I raged. My partner grinned and shrugged his shoulders. At the time, I was writing an article about how being queer was not just about being in a state of oppression. Some of us experience a certain pleasure in being a freak, and I called that experience freaking. Why aren't you mad, I demanded. It's just like freaking, he said. While I was raging at the customs counter, my partner was quietly enjoying messing with the border guards' heads. show dedicated to playing psychedelic music from parts of the spectrum, rock, pop, electronic, as well as garage and noise rock. Sundays, 5 to 6 p.m. at CITR 101.9 FM. LGBTQ2I Night is a positive space for folks to learn about bike maintenance in a relaxed environment led by queer mechanics and volunteers. It takes place on the fourth Wednesday of every month at the Bike Kitchen on UBC's campus. Bring your own bike and fix them with our tools, come with questions and ask away, or learn by watching other folks work on their bikes. Beginners are always welcome. This event is entirely free to attend and there will be free pizza. For more information, visit bikecoop.ca. And welcome back to the Arts Report. I am your fill-in host of the evening, Ashley Park. I'm joined by the lovely... Jake Clark. And the charismatic... Jessica Lynn. That's right. And just so you know, I know that our host, Christine, uh, this is actually her last show of, uh, well, for a while. She's going to Belgium. Yeah, in Bruges, right? In Bruges? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's <laughs> what, Movie joke. That's what I'm going off of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're filming midgets. Whoa! No, no, I, I, I actually don't have a clue. But uh, before, um, before that, I just wanted to give a, a really heartfelt message to Christine and all the hard work that she's done for the Arts Report in help supporting local arts and culture. So, Christine Kim, I just want to say you mm-hmm. were one. You are one of the best hosts I've ever gotten to work with. You are so diligent, hardworking, and you are honestly so full of joy when you get to basically you know be here and report on all these amazing things for the people so thank you for all your hard work christine it was a privilege mm-hmm. um i'm relatively new here and uh you were just so nice to me from the start and this is you know this is kind of like i've just you were very like prompt in like answering all uh my messages and my questions you know you were very uh helpful in like initiating me into the arts report world so thank you for being cool yeah so thank you very much christine kim so from uh this day forward i will be your main host ashley park and we'll have amazing hosting opportunities from our wonderful uh 
group of people, the Arts Report gang. But before we end today's show, February the 15th show, we'll have Christine's final interview with Canadian author Robert J. Sauer about his book. So stay tuned. Cheers. Three of those countries together. Quantum Night is a science fiction novel by Canadian author Robert J. Sawyer. It is about an experimental psychologist who is shocked to discover that lost memories of six months from his life hold dark secrets about his potentially criminal past. This novel has hit number one on the hardcover bestsellers list in Locus, the U.S. trade journal of science fiction and fantasy fields, as well as held number one best-selling hardcover for the entire year of 2016 at Baca Phoenix Books in Toronto, the world's oldest extant science fiction specialty store. Quantum Night was also longlisted for Canada Reads and is currently out in paperback. I got to speak with Robert on the societal inspiration and implications of the book in the realm of politics and beyond. My name is Robert J. Sawyer. I am a Canadian science fiction writer and a member of the Order of Canada. So today we're here to talk about one of your most recent books called Quantum Night. Can you give a bit of a description about what Quantum Night as a book is about? Yes, Quantum Night is my 23rd novel, and it's about a professor of experimental psychology at the University of Manitoba who starts to understand that he himself, decades ago, had at that same institution been part of a possibly unethical research project in social psychology that's caused him to suppress his memories of six months of his life from 20 years ago. As he uncovers all the details about that, he starts to realize a great deal about the nature of authoritarian followers of evil. And, of course, that gets us into the topic of present-day followers of authoritarian evil. Right. And was it current events happening that inspired you to write Quantum Night? And also, I mean, given that Quantum Night is about a experimental psychologist who gets into the realm of quantum physics. What was that like? I mean, exploring something so complicated. Sure. Well, the first question, what inspired me? I'm known as an optimistic writer. This is my 23rd novel, but most of the 22 previous ones are very upbeat, optimistic, positive about the future. I grew up watching the original Star Trek, and that no doubt imprinted me in the way I view my extrapolations. And some reviewers, not a lot, but a few had observed that I'm almost too optimistic, given the current political and social climate of the world, about how good things are going to be for the rest of this century. And I thought, you know, I don't think that's true, but why don't I set out to do a novel not about good, but about evil? And I started by asking a very simple question. Is there any science? Because I'm a science fiction writer. Is there any science about evil, or is it just a, you know, religious concept? Turns out, you can find out for yourself, plug it into Google, there's tons of science about evil. Social science, psychology, sociology, uh, political science about why people, Germans, uh, you know, the fine, noble, upstanding, morally correct German people followed Adolf Hitler in World War II. What the heck happened there? And I had seen the United States drifting more and more, at least on the right, towards what I would have to call far-right, extremist, nationalistic, uh, white supremacist even politics, and saw even uh, eight years ago and four years ago and last year in presidential politics, uh, 
that we were moving towards that on the right in the states. And inevitably, there would be a far-right president who would be dangerous. Your second question about science and uh, uh, all of that is, you know, I'm not a scientist. In fact, I have a broadcasting degree, radio and television arts from Ryerson University. Hmm. But I was a science journalist for a time. And a science journalist is like a sports journalist. You don't have to be an athlete. You don't have to be able to win the game to follow with great interest who the players are. And root maybe for the home team, hey, Canadian science on the international stage. And uh, really become uh, not just an aficionado, but an advocate and an explainer, an interpreter of what's happening in an area that you find fascinating. But in uh, science fiction, the thing I love about it, you know, you're at UBC, right? And you have a quantum physics uh, professor there, and you probably certainly have an experimental psychology professor there. Mm-hmm. Not to delve into their personal lives, but I bet they've never even met or had lunch together. Uh, in science fiction, you get to take these disparate genres, disparate fields, and clash them together and see if any sparks fly. And that was the great fun of writing this book. What would an experimental psychologist learn about evil from a quantum physicist, and vice versa? And how would that inform? each of those characters on their journeys in a story. Can you talk a little bit more about how you married those two concepts of morality and ethics to do with evil with science? But one of my great fascinations, and in fact very likely the subject for my next book, is the Manhattan Project, the World War II effort by Canada, we tend to forget, the United States and Great Britain to develop the world's first atomic bomb. And it brought the best scientists from all three of those countries together to really try and solve a fundamental problem in physics. Could you, in fact, do a controlled fission reaction uh, in, in the laboratory? And, of course, the results were devastating. The devastation, in particular, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan, where enormous numbers of people had died. And the scientists involved mostly, with a few exceptions, Leo Zillard being one, mostly compartmentalized and said, oh, it's just science. We'll only leave that up to other people to think about. That bothered me a great deal. And in the social sciences, remember I mentioned at the beginning in describing the novel that it was about uh, uh, experimental psychologists who came to realize that he himself might have been a subject in an unethical experiment. The great studies of evil in the social sciences, there are two. There's one by a guy named Stanley Milgram, who you may have heard of, who in uh, the 60s did experiments with a shock machine where he would supposedly hook up innocent people with electrodes and ask other people to administer ever-increasing shocks to them as uh, they got more and more answers wrong in a, in a simple word association test. And what was astonishing is that what he wasn't testing was the word association ability, but how high a shock people would give simply because a guy in a white lab coat, an authoritarian figure, would say, hey, go ahead and do this. The other one is the famous Stanford prison guard experiment of Mm -hmm. Philip Zimbardo, where he arbitrarily divided students at Stanford University into either guards or prisoners and had to finally at the urging of his wife, shut down the experiment, or the woman who became his wife, shut down the experiment because it had become brutality on, at a university campus. Students really and literally being beaten by other students, humiliated by other students. So in the social sciences, ironically, which have social people as part of them, it was the Wild West until fairly recently with no regard for the, the ethics 